0: hello and welcome to another episode of pakistonomy my name is uzay Yunus, and after a brief hiatus uh, i am back i was in pakistan traveling and then uh, as ishaq dar was breaking the back of the dollar uh, my own back got broken not broken literally but um, i was a bit sick so we took some time off uh, but now i'm well and and hoping to resume regular service of this podcast and Speaking of regular service, uh, we have our regular guest, uh, Parham Hussein, a dear friend of mine, business and economy journalist based out of Karachi. Most of you are, of course, familiar with him. He's been on the podcast before, frequently writes about economic developments in the country and somebody who perhaps is one of the few people on the journalism side who's seen and observed very closely the frequent uh, quote-unquote boom-bust cycles that we call or the cycles of trying to control the dollar and stimulating growth, etc. Um, so today we're going to be talking to Puram about all that is going on in the Pakistan economy, starting with the return of Dar. Puram, your uh, dear friend from back in the day is back in Pakistan, back in the finance ministry, and back trying to control the dollar. Um, first of all, welcome to Pakistanamy, and then tell us, like, how does it feel to have Ishaq Dar back in the cube block and running the show once again.
1: It feels like I'm covering the same story over and over again for the past 15 years, whether it's Dar or somebody else. But with Dar coming back, there's a bit of a double whammy to all this, Uzair. Because A, the face is the same, and uh, B, the, the talk is the same. He's uh, saying and doing the same things that he was saying and doing in his last stint which ran from about 2013 till about 2017 um so it's just it's the same story over and over again but there's one crucial difference this time round and that crucial difference is that pakistan is tapped out in K- in uh, terms of its um, uh, debt capacity how much we can borrow uh, there's a great deal of donor fatigue uh, as well because i i think uh, in dars first Uh, or his last stint, uh, we began the whole business of uh, supplementing IMF money with money taken from bilateral partners. So the the borrowing from China and Saudi Arabia, if you remember in 2014, the first Saudi deposit, that's what they were calling it, a deposit from a friendly country, um, had come in. Of course, since then, they've gone back again and again and again, asking for more and more and more. Um, but by now, either the Saudis are tapped out, the Chinese are tapped out, and uh, the IMF is uh, at the end of its uh, patience with uh, with Pakistan because, and we can talk about this. You know what, what all has been happening over the last one and a half years between Pakistan and the IMF. So I and so I think uh, you know in in terms of being able to do what he is setting out to do he's going to find a significantly constrained uh, space and room in which to support the dollar, to um, uh, shore up the fiscal uh, house, uh, and at the same time, combat inflation using state resources, because that's really what he's talking of doing. So my eyes are on, on this. How does he generate the resources that are required? And if he doesn't get those resources, Uh, will he have what it takes to realize the limits of his own power, to realize that this is it, uh, this is as much as I can do. And if I were to uh, press ahead, let's say, in terms of selling dollars into the market in order to stabilize the exchange rate um, at a level that he wants it at, um, the, you know, there's nothing wrong with stabilizing the exchange rate. The problem is when you try to determine the exchange rate and you try to, for example, in an advance announce that it should be below 200 uh, rupees to a dollar uh, by this point in time. Uh, when he runs out of resources or runs short of resources, will he plow ahead and continue uh, uh, to, to offload his resources in a, in a vain attempt to, to try and uh, reach his goal or to stay at his goal Or will he realize that this is it, this is as far as I can take things, and uh, from here on, if I were to continue doing what I'm doing, uh, it will put the economy in significant amount of danger. And uh, in order to get an answer to that question, I've looked at his own track record in the past, and then it occurred to me while doing that, that uh, his track record is not that different from every other finance minister's track record for the past 20 years, Uh, none of them really realize the limits of their power, except perhaps for uh, Hafiz Sheikh, who was, whose only job was to come in and stabilize the economy and its deficits. And of course, more recently, Miftah. Um, but other than that, we saw Shaukat Tareen, we've seen Shokat Aziz uh, before that, uh, and of course, Ishaq Dar um, plowing ahead without acknowledging or without realizing the limits that they are breaching certain limits and thereby endangering the economy's viability. Um, and I'm just wondering whether Dar will repeat that story or not because you know Pakistan is in no position to afford that kind of adventurism.
0: To me, the, the, the point that you made about being tapped out, right, is, is so important. But also, I would add to this the fact that, you know, obviously, the OPEC plus has announced uh, proposing a 2 million uh, barrel a day, uh, you know, cut uh, to production. So oil prices are back on the rebound. He, of course, cut 12 rupees uh, in the petroleum prices uh, over the last few days as well. Do you have that impact? You have the war in Ukraine continuing and, and futures prices, at least on the gas market in Europe, showing that the prices aren't going to ease. So you're, you're expecting a colder than normal winter in Pakistan in terms of the availability of gas and the fact that, you know, people won't have heat uh, to keep warm. Um, and of course, the cargoes aren't coming. Um, and then on top of it, as if this wasn't enough, the Fed is basically continuing to signal that it is going to do whatever it takes to break the back of inflation, which means a more expensive dollar and more expensive uh, access to the bond market. Um, Do you sense that there is a recognition, at least among Dar? We know from Mifta, at least he understood those limitations, right? As you said, he's one of the rare finance ministers Um, who sort of understood the limitations that were there inherent in the economy and the exogenous factors that added to those limitations. In these last few weeks or days since Dar has come back, have you sensed at least from the PDM government or folks you've spoken to close to the government um, that they recognize that this is not going to be an easy task in terms of their desire to stimulate growth and provide quote-unquote relief into an election cycle for all these reasons that you and I follow and care about and continue writing and discussing?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, if there is a recognition, it's not coming through in their public pronouncements. Um, There may well be uh, a recognition of the fact that the international environment uh, is right now nowhere near as permissive as it was uh, in his last stint between 2013 and 2017. Uh, that was a time period when people were wondering that we've had such prolonged <clears throat> period of low interest rates in uh, the advanced industrial economies, and yet it's not showing up in inflation. You remember those debates. Um, and uh, <clears throat> that, that that basically allowed them to continue with very low interest rates indefinitely, or at least up until COVID, I mean, un- until our time now. Um, but uh, they, they, you know, uh, and, and then other things too, oil prices were crashing um, in those same years, and uh, the debt capacity uh, that Pakistan had was uh, much larger than it is right now. Now, this time, I I'm, I'm, i don't doubt that they realize it. I don't doubt that they have an idea that uh, things are not as rosy for them this time round as they were back then. Uh, but to what extent do they actually grasp the, the extent of the problem? Uh, that's the real key question here. The thing is, you know, it, it's there's severely limited room in which to to operate, and you can see this, for example, in the kind of uh, discounts uh, on which Pakistan's Sukuk bond scheduled for maturity this December is selling. You know, I mean, if in, if the holders of Pakistan's uh, external debt are asking themselves whether the December bond is a safe bet or not. And December is only a few months away. Uh, if they're asking themselves whether that is safe or not, so they are clearly sensing uh, a much higher level of uh, <clears throat> stress on the external sector than perhaps darsab would be willing to admit right now. And uh, and those are people who don't make up their mind based on sentiment, right? I mean, the bond markets, global bond markets, are not like stock markets here. Where stampedes are created because one <clears throat> stockbroker said one thing or another, um, they usually come with very, very uh, considered views, looking at your external financing requirements, looking at your your foreign exchange reserves, and keeping a close eye on the fiscal framework and the numbers as they come out. Um, so these are actually some pretty informed decisions that um, uh, bond traders and bond bond holders are making to discount Pakistan's December. Uh, maturity. I don't recall seeing this. I think maybe the last time would have been in 2008, but I forget right now whether there was a bond maturing in that particular fiscal year. Uh, that would be 2007-8. But there was a blowout on the euro bonds back then. Um, this time, it, it, it's just uh, unusual to see a blowout happening on uh, a, a maturity that's coming due in a few months and where you clearly do have the reserves at this point in time to meet that maturity. This is just one example that I'm using of the kind of limitations that he has. And the real question for me is, to what extent does he really understand uh, the, the severity of the constraints that he will have to operate under in order to deliver what he has to? You know, to my mind, he's come with a, 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 an, an agenda to do about three, maybe four things. He has to keep the IMF program on track. on track. I don't think he, I think even he would realize that he cannot allow that program to go off track because many of the other commitments being made uh, for flood assistance, for debt relief that they are now going to start working on would in all likelihood hinge on continuation of the IMF program. Um, They obviously don't want a default um, by, by Pakistan as well, because that would impact uh, the country's ability to import and export things, and an energy dependent uh, country um, cannot really afford to go there, even marginally. Um, and at the same time, I think his brief includes uh, re- minimizing or mitigating the impact of the, or the burden of the adjustment measures on the electorate, on the voters, on the common citizenry of this country to do more than what is possible to try and minimize the impact on the poor, on the middle classes, uh, because these are the people from whom they will be uh, asking for a vote within the next 12 months. Um, And at the same time now, he has added one more item to that list. I was surprised to see he's talking about reviving the economy, uh, which goes beyond uh, mitigating the impact of the adjustment on the poor. When you talk of reviving the economy, you're talking about uh, shoring up business confidence. You're talking about uh, freeing up corporate balance sheets from um, all the other expenses that have uh, encroached upon them uh, in order to free up the resources they need to get their wheels of the economy moving. Um, And he's talking about lowering interest rates, bringing down the exchange rate. Uh, We've got uh, a Monetary Policy Committee meeting coming up in the next few days. I think that's on Monday. Um, just a few days away. We'll have, I suppose, our first real-world test of uh, DAR's actual intentions and uh, how far he's going. I found it instructive uh, to note that uh, among the first meetings that he held after taking oath, the first one was with the FPR. So he's clearly getting a sense of the revenue position and where things are going on that front. And uh, the second was with with the state bank. And uh, he had the state bank governor sitting next to him in a televised, uh, in, a, in, a, in, in a public uh, setting. Uh, and the state bank governor is saying that, yes, the state bank will do whatever we can to help support the government's goal of reviving the economy. I wonder if uh, he himself realizes what he's signing up for uh, over here. But uh, yeah, I mean, to answer your question one more time, I, I think there would be a realization that the space is limited, but I think the extent to which it is limited, I think over there, they probably um, have not fully appreciated how tight the situation really is.
0: The readout from that meeting with the governor, to me, what stood out was their their talk on um, uh, coordination of fiscal and monetary policy to stimulate growth. And my own alarm bells went off when, when, they, when that quote came out, because I was like, the State Bank A is already running negative real rates. Um, It obviously still is behind the curve in terms of what's happening. They've been doing OMOs to provide liquidity into the market because everybody realizes this cannot go on forever. And on top of it, now you have a finance minister sitting with the governor, making these pronouncements, and then also openly, as you said, saying he not only wants to stimulate growth, he wants lower interest rates and a stronger currency all while being part of the IMF program in an external environment that as we've talked about is not conducive to stimulating growth because it creates all sorts of risks. And I am just like, are you just trying to create the illusion of stability and growth into elections so that whatever happens after the election, somebody else has to deal with that somebody probably, if you succeed in your wish, Will be you yourself, aka Mr. Dar, because then you're expecting to come back to power. So I just don't, from the outside, understand what they're trying to do. And on, even on that debt moratorium and restructuring conversation, um, yes, the floods have been devastating. Yes, Pakistan will need support and and dollar flows. But if you're seeking those flows and at the same time making the argument that I want a stronger currency. With a track record of doing what he has done, I don't know how assured bilateral and multilateral donors are to provide that dollar, even if there was no fatigue, to a finance minister that is trying to do hangy-panky, to say the least.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, Pakistan's creditors are watching uh, these same signs that you and I are discussing very, very carefully, very closely. Um, in my own conversations with them, uh, that's the impression that I've gotten that uh, these things are being watched very carefully. Um, I think a lot of uh, a, a lot hinges on again the extent to which he needs to go. Now we know that he's not likely to let up on this uh, thrust of his to um, uh, revive the economy and at the same time to mitigate the burden on the poor um and the middle classes as well i mean his constituency or the constituency that his party will be asking for a vote is quite large and uh, they can't really go into that election yeah um, i mean sorry to
0: interrupt you on this like this argument that we need to lower petroleum prices to provide relief to the poor who have been impacted by floods on surface level sounds okay but you know you scratch a bit deeper rings a bit hollow to me because those that, that have been devastated by the floods are not on motorbikes or cars anymore. Um, they need cash handouts and food and, and medicines and things like that. And the, the the cut to the prices actually is for the middle and upper classes who actually have motorcycles and automobiles and things like that and care for it. Yes, you could argue that, you know, higher oil prices translated in inflation, food security, blah, blah, blah. But that's not the direct argument that's being made in this instance.
1: No, I think that argument is just being made for purposes of, I think, just like uh, putting on a a public face, trying to use the floods or leverage the floods uh, as a means to persuade the creditors to loosen the terms. But as you pointed out, I think the creditors are themselves going to be watching his own policies. And uh, I think quite obviously they will ask that if we give you this space, what do you plan to do with it? And if he can credibly show them that his intention is to help the flood victims, that uh, the, the, the... the rescheduling that he's asking for may, may well be forthcoming. But uh, if the uh, the demand for rescheduling is accompanied by uh, talk of reviving the economy, then I don't think so. I don't think anyone in the, in the world wants to really contribute to reviving Pakistan's economy. I think they would be more than glad to uh, help out in terms of flood relief and uh, rehabilitation and reconstruction. There's, I, I think any number of uh, creditors who would be glad to... Um, um, know, assist in in that process. We're seeing that already. The ADB has stepped forward. The World Bank has been reasonably fast in terms of reprogramming um, resources already committed for other projects towards flood relief instead. So some amount of uh, uh, funding has already begun to arrive. Um, there my feeling is, and here I'm just sort of uh, giving you an idea of uh, <clears throat> how I think things might work out, is that they will, A, leverage the floods to the extent that they can, and B, they will uh, leverage or at least count very significantly on this idea that Pakistan is too big to fail. Um, this has happened regularly. It's a regular feature in uh, in our history. And uh, eventually they'll say, well, we'll be just gonna go ahead and do what we're doing. We we'll let let the country approach the edge of default, and let's see. Let's see if they're willing to just stand by and let us go over the edge. Um, but you know, it, it's it's not a good bet to be making for 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 a finance minister. Uh, but um, I, you know, I'm I'm increasingly entertaining the idea that uh, he's willing to go there, Dar uh, Because the political compulsion behind him right now, you know, let's not underestimate it. Uh, you have uh, an a government with a very embattled mandate, uh, a very short. Uh, uh, distance to go before they have to face the electorate. And um, any government under these circumstances would find it very, very difficult to undertake the kind of stabilization measures that are there in the the IMF uh, uh, program. So the the compulsions are very, very strong. And I think they will reach for um, whatever they can in order to pursue them and uh, put off the adjustment for as long as they possibly can. Um, and in fact, their horizon would be until uh, until the next election. And then we'll come around to the stabilization part after that. Uh, I'm just hoping that the resources exist to uh, for them to do this without uh, really landing up in a catastrophic default of some sort.
0: I don't know how you're viewing... Um what's happened over the last couple of weeks, at least in Washington, where I am seated. Um, obviously, Tony Blinken made the comment that, you know, in terms of debt restructuring, etc., Pakistan should look to China as well, because yeah. China owns 30% of Pakistan's bilateral credit, both commercial and bilateral combined. I loved
1: how that was just sort of thrown in there, with yeah. the China part. right? He's talking about all the pak China, the, the diaspora, their relationship, and just sort of threw this in there. And then continued talking about it. It Was a very interesting how it was done. Clearly, that was a very very intentional move.
0: That was intentional, and I think they've also on the D.C. side done something super interesting as well. Which right after the trip, after Bilawal Bhutto was done with his meetings, the United States announced the debt relief of one hundred thirty-two million dollars worth of bilateral loans that were there. Right. So this was the initial announcement in person with Secretary Blinken, Bilawal. Uh, that was made was 10 million additional dollars that takes the total amount of flood relief to over 60 million or 65 million. And then 132 million in terms of payments that were coming due and they've been pushed out. Um, That was the announcement that was made. And so to me, it's like almost the United States has said, if you're going to make the argument of too big to fail and floods and etc., then we actually have done our bid, which is roughly $150-plus plus million cumulatively, close to $200 million by the end of the year, is my guess, that they'll go to directly as the United States. And then if you want more, well, go to Beijing and, and have that conversation and see what you can get, because then we'll think about other stuff, right? I don't know how you're seeing this, but I think they're also, in the U.S., at least seem to be preempting this too-big-to-fail argument that we need relief, saying, okay... We're not actually the senior sort of majority stakeholders of your debt profile anymore. So we'll do a little bit here immediately. And then you've got to go to Beijing and see what the Chinese offer. Right,
1: right. You know, and the thing that I noted in that entire, in, in that episode was the sharp reaction that this drew from the Chinese side. Um, and uh, I think it was the next day or the day after, but within days, the Chinese side shot back themselves saying that, well, if America wants to help Pakistan, they should do more to step up with the immediate relief. And they pointed to all the plane loads of aid they have sent and whatnot. Of course, for the Pakistani government, the immediate relief and the aid, uh, plane loads of aid, the the 100 million, 150 million dollars is fine, but that's not really what they're there to talk about, right? They're talking about the multi-billion dollar debt relief that they're looking for. Now, here's the interesting thing that I'm finding. And this is another new ingredient that has happened. It's caught me a bit worried. Um, about five, about maybe seven, up until 2014, when we got into this business of taking cash loans from bilateral partners and calling it a reserve extension facility, calling it a, a, a deposit from a friendly country, whatever name you want to give it, it's basically cash loan that you are taking from a bilateral uh, uh, partner. Uh, we got into this game back in 2014 or so. Uh, prior to that, whenever Pakistan needed uh, a, a debt relief, for example, in 2001, they went to the Paris Club. There was one window, one place where you had to go and you got, uh, you know, provided that the call had come in, the fix, had, the fix was in beforehand, uh, which in 2001 it was, uh, 2002 actually, uh, in the wake of 9-11. Um, that was one of the aid packages, a part of the aid package that was extended to Pakistan. Which, by the way, Um, to the younger
0: listeners, when people say, Musharraf ke din bade this was the driver. The initial driver was this restructuring of the Paris Club that brought in the acche of the Musharraf era.
1: That opened up massive amounts of space for Musharraf. Massive. Bigger than nothing, anything enjoyed by Ayub Khan or Ziaul Haq. Um, but in, uh, but in any case, you know, you, you had to go to the IMF at that time in those days, and you had to go to the Paris club. Uh, and it only rarely came to the Paris club There, you'll find a couple of instances only where Pakistan is going there. Pri- prior to that, they used to have what they called the aid to Pakistan consortium, where all bilateral creditors, multilateral creditors, uh, that Pakistan was dealing with were on one forum. This I'm talking over here, like, uh, in the sixties, seventies, eighties, so you had again one place where you went to with your external sector difficulties and said, "Well, this is what we need: we need debt relief, we need uh, an IMF loan, we need World Bank assistance and whatnot." And that one place, everything would be worked out—the aid to Pakistan consortium. Uh, but now, uh, Pakistan has to go to 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 seek a bailout not only to the IMF uh, but separately. Uh, to Saudi Arabia, to UAE, and to China. Uh, this time round, they added Qatar to the list as well. And uh, so now you, you what's happened is that the number of creditors involved in, 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 in the bailouts that Pakistan now requires has grown. The amounts have grown. Uh, in fact, if you think about it, from about 2000 till now, if you look at the various boom-bust cycles, Every boom-bust cycle is getting shorter and shorter and shorter, right? So we had about uh, four, maybe five years of a boom-bust cycle in in the Musharraf years. Let's say if it ran roughly from 2003 till about 2008, 2002 till 2007, you're talking five years at best, Uh, maybe four, but thereabouts. Um, And plus its intensity, you hit a peak of 9% growth rate in 2004. Uh, The next one ran from roughly about 2014 till 2017. By 2018, Pakistan was back knocking at the doorstep of the IMF. And the latest one under Imran Khan barely ran about 18 months from about June 2020 till about uh, uh, December 2021 when the emergency interest rate hikes, in my view, is the event that signals the end of that uh, boom cycle and the arrival of the bust um, instead. So each cycle gets shorter and shorter and shorter the size of the bailout required gets larger and larger and larger. And the number of creditors that you need to mobilize to put your bailout package together gets larger and larger and larger.
0: In fact, now the IMF calls the Saudis to say, you are so that we can deh sign on, ke on ke the dotted line. Exactly.
1: So, you know, uh, now Pakistan is in a position where in order to put together the latest of many such bailouts, They've got to first go to the Americans and ask them. The Americans say, well, talk to the Chinese first. The Chinese sh- shoot back saying, well, the Americans should help out more with immediate aid first before uh, sending people to us for debt relief. No, Chinese aren't particularly keen on giving anyone debt relief because, heck, you know, we're only one country from our perspective, right? When you stand in Islamabad and look out, you see Beijing. But when you stand in Beijing and look out, you see what, about 60, 65, 70 countries? there was 82 that participated in that belt and road initiative conference so they've got a long line of people standing outside their door asking for debt relief they've already declined to one party which is sri lanka um and now they now they're finding that the americans are sending more and more people their way saying hey you want debt relief sure we'll give you debt relief go get, the, get go get it from the chinese first um And soon, somebody will say, well, get it from the Saudis too. And they're going to have to go and talk to the Saudis and and tell them, and the Saudis aren't going to be any more patient with this uh, than the Americans or the Chinese are. No, they're likely to say that, look, you came to us for one such deposit back in 2014. Then you were out, somebody else came in, and they started asking for more and more. The last one we just gave you was what, $2 billion? That was in December 2021. And every time you came back asking for one of these uh, these uh, deposits uh, from us, we would tell you that, look, you take this money, but make sure you do the right thing to ensure that you're not coming back. You know, don't just spend it all in one place. Don't consume the money and current consumption. Um, take the following steps. And you would say, yes, 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 we'll do all that. But for now, can we please have the money? And as soon as the money was released, you never did any of the things that we asked you to do. And Today, you're coming here asking us for debt relief. You didn't do a single one of the things that you were supposed to in order to put your own economy on a more sound footing. And now you're asking us for debt relief, saying that, well, we will work very hard to pay this off uh, down the line. Uh, You made the same promises last time you came. You never kept them back then. What makes us believe that you will do now? But you can already see that the the game is getting increasingly complex. It's getting larger and larger. Uh, and it's getting more and more complex because the more creditors that you have to speak with uh, in order to arrange one of these bailout packages, uh, the more complex the game becomes because they start hinging it on actions by another. They start saying, well, fine, if that guy agrees, then I'll agree. And uh, and you have to now deal not with one IMF in order to unlock all the multilateral funding or one Paris club in order to arrange all bilateral uh, debt servicing, but in addition to these two, you've now got one, two, three world capitals to deal with, Riyadh, uh, Abu Dhabi, and, uh, and, and Beijing as well. And it's, uh, you know, I, I'm just worried and I get quite concerned when I look at this longer term trajectory and where we stand, because naturally you just extrapolate this out into the future um, and you see where it's taking us. You know, it's not to a good place. And then you have to ask, well, what will be required to deflect this trajectory off its present course onto something else, onto a better course than this one? And the mind begins to boggle at all that will be required uh, to do that. So I wish I had a more positive, upbeat thing to say, but no, our in the drowning in floods and debt at the same time. And uh, the international, the global environment is turning very, very difficult uh, in terms of energy pricing, interest rates, um, that, um, I think Dar Sab has a pretty tough job cut out for him.
0: Yeah, no, we'll see how he does. And in fact, uh, I was going to ask you this question towards the tail end, but I think we spent enough time on, on this topic to get to this question as well, which is, I was in Pakistan, Karachi, in Islamabad and met some folks Obviously, um, keep an eye on the numbers, but also across the political spectrum, right, especially in the PTI and the PMLN. And my read of this was that while there may be some recognition, as you said internally, maybe they don't say it publicly, privately, they will hint at it that yes, this is the problem. But well, when you ask them for the solution or the what you said, you know, what decisions have to be made to change that trajectory, right that we're extrapolating and talking about. I at least don't get a read on a plan. So on the PMLN side, we clearly know that is the answer now. This is their last gas pre-election maneuver to stay relevant in power somehow and not face the wrath of the electorate. On the PTI side, I asked a senior PTI member the same question. They were very confident that two-third majority is ours for the taking. And I said, well, we can debate that, but let's not, for the sake of argument, let's say that you actually get two-third majority tomorrow. You're in cabinet again. Well, what's your plan? And I kid you um, not, the response was that the initial few months that we need to spend is to control and manage the inflow and outflow of dollar and overseas Pakistanis trust Imran Khan a lot. So when he's back as being prime minister, the inflow of dollars will start again because overseas Pakistanis will provide that money and we will stabilize really. the economy. That's the, To me, that was the plan that was communicated to me directly. And my alarm bells again went off saying there is no plan. And they said, you know, Shaukat Tareen-sah is leading a committee, blah, blah, blah. We heard this back in the pre-2018 run-up as well with Asad Omar doing the same thing. Have you gotten a sense across the political spectrum of there being any plan in terms of what to do? Or is this, this is it? This is it.
1: This is it. I've gotten exactly the same signals you're talking about. Uh, the PTI people. When you ask them, fine, let's assume you get your two-thirds majority. What do you plan to do with it? Um, you hear talk of Ruda, the the real estate uh, development scheme that they are launching in, And Imran Khan himself keeps pointing to that as some kind of a motor force and motor engine of uh, of growth uh, in his second term, in his second time round. Uh, and yes, overseas Pakistanis. I mean, in a sense, back to the dam fund. That uh, um, and and even over there, they haven't really done the detailed working required to get a sense of how much uh, capacity there is uh, among overseas Pakistanis to give um, or, or or to send remittances. So they're just going by a very back of the envelope calculation that there are this many overseas Pakistanis. And each one gives one thousand dollars. This is the amount we'll get. Let's assume we get thirty percent of what we are of uh, of this amount. Even then, it does so much. uh, Today's
0: Twitter math is how much gold do Pakistani women own and whether that is enough to pay out the debt owed by Pakistan.
1: Yes, I saw that. And uh, that coming from the party's lead uh, economic spokesman, right? Uh, That shows you that this is the level of the thinking uh, in that camp. And in the PMLN camp, the level of the thinking doesn't really extend beyond surviving the next one year. Uh, preventing the economy from really uh, going belly up uh, while at the same time mitigating the impact on you. Put off all important decisions and I think where structural reform is consider, is concerned, fine, fair enough. We, you know, put it off, this is not the time to start um, um, you know reforming the regulators or something. This is an extended interim government that we are living through. Um, but uh, you know even after, I mean, with them, the task is a bit easier because we've got one, two, three stints of theirs in the past to look back on and say, well, you know, what kind of thinking have they have they revealed every time they've been in power? And mostly it's just project-based, you know, we'll build this project, we'll build, uh, the, in, in the last government, it was CPEC and the power plants, and the one before that, it was um, the motorway, no, the first one, it was the motorway, um so it, it doesn't really go much beyond that big high visibility projects that they then brand as or present as infrastructure investments designed to remove the bottlenecks within the economy and thereby help the economy grow we find out well, later the, it's the orange
0: line as, as as much as i love public mass transit and the need for that in pakistani cities the fact that dollar denominated loans were taken for a metro line, not a bus line, a subway, not, it's not a subway, either a rail yeah, line, yeah. It's an a elevated, urban train. elevated train line where the money is subsidized. And of course, mass transit subsidized all over the world, but you're taking dollar denominated loans in a country that doesn't earn enough dollars to begin with. And somehow that's a measure of success. I, I have fundamental questions about whoever developed that strategy.
1: Yeah, I think they' I think it's easy enough to see that there would have been far more lower cost uh, alternatives than the orange line um, uh, elevated train uh, at that time. but you know it looks a lot better that uh, elevated train it, These are sort of big vanity projects that uh, that that they enjoy pursuing. We haven't really seen a vision coming out of uh, any of these parties. Uh, to try and, let's say, what, what, do you, what are you going to do regarding the depletion of your gas reserves? This is a long-term structural uh, thing Pakistan is looking at for all time to come in our, in our future. We are deep inside a situation now where um, our heavy reliance on natural gas, almost half of Pakistan's primary fuel needs are met with natural gas. Um, and those reservoirs are declining at a rapid pace. It will be only a few years' time be- before uh, imported LNG uh, exceeds domestic gas in, um, in, 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 our, in our system. Uh, but the costs that are coming with, with LNG are huge. You're already seeing the government sort of bargaining with the key stakeholders in the natural gas sector, uh, such as the the textile mill guys who run their captive power plants and then their their boilers on it, who are saying that well if you don't subsidize this for us and sell it to us at uh, nine dollars uh, a unit, then uh, we're not going to be viable anymore and our exports will come to a standstill. Uh, fair enough, they may well be right, um, and uh, you know we can take our positions on this debate. My concern is more. Uh, where are you going five years down the down the line on this? Uh, because you can maybe eke out another year on subsidised LNG for for to to shore up your exports. Maybe, lady, uh, you know, if, if luck uh, smiles upon you, you eke out a second year, maybe even a third. But countries should not be living year to year like this. You know, there needs to be some kind of uh, uh, thinking about what to do. Uh, about this, the fact that our indigenous gas reserves are declining. What is our, w- w- how are we planning to keep energy costs in check um, as this process continues? I would even,
0: I would even make this a broader point on energy, right, Khurram. That, and again, I, I moved to the United States in 2007, and I lived through that whole debate that happened here about energy security, and that debate, and the fact that the United States, whether they should invest in shale, energy, gas, uh, and, and oil sort of fracking technology and all of that was a huge debate. But it was linked to energy security. And all of a sudden, America emerged as a net exporter of energy as a result of that strategy. Now, you can talk about the carbon emissions, and you can talk about the environmental cost, blah, blah, blah. But the debate was energy security. I don't see any debate in Pakistan about what is the energy security strategy for a country mm-hmm. that supposedly talks about being a national security state? I'm like, without energy, how are you going to defend your own nation? Like, forget about everything else.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. That, that was my point in actually bringing this up. And this is just one example, uh, Uzair, that we've, uh, you know, that, and we can have an, a lengthy conversation on this alone. But you'll find, you know, I find the same examples, let's say on the tax to GDP side. Uh, how on earth do you intend to make a go of things uh, with a tax-to-GDP ratio that doesn't really climb above 10% for very long? And when, when it does, it's 11%, 12%, 13% and then falls back down again um, below. That, that refuses to stay in the double digits for very long. Um, and uh, the losing competitive edge. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, we were a cotton-based exporter in the 1980s. We are still a cotton-based exporter probably one of the few countries that never really diversified its export base in any meaningful way. Um, so how do you intend to remain competitive uh, and uh, retain your ability to earn dollars dollars, and support your national currency and uh, your import requirements um, as you keep losing competitive edge uh, in, in global markets? Um, we could go on and on. I think you and I and our, our, our viewers will be quite familiar with this list, there's nothing I don't really see anywhere in any of the parties um, and uh, any real thinking taking place on this. And you can push people to to come up with ideas and they literally just sort of invent them then and there and say, well, we could do this, we could do that. But these are back of the envelope ideas, little notions, um, some of them rather silly. I think mean, looking to the uh, the dam fund was a pretty silly idea at the time, and I was surprised at the level of emotion that it evoked uh, among people who were believers in it. Um, but, you know, I've, I've got a feeling that as time goes on and these deficiencies begin to bite, um, the, the, the temptation to turn to gimmicks of that sort will increase with it. And, uh, you know, people thinking that they have some kind of a shortcut um to to get out of this situation in um, in, in these crises,
0: yeah and in these yeah. crises of course uh vested interests if you want to call them that or whatever else rent seekers or whatever find ways to make money right so we had the longest ever real estate amnesty scheme with the argument that yes. it will create jobs and generate growth and 40 allied industries blah 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 um recently we're seeing obviously another sort of not a, a one could call it a scandal, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but, you know, this whole banks making money off of FX spreads and the state bank supposed to investigate and parliament looking into this, et cetera. Um, for, I have two questions on it. First of all, explain to the listeners what this whole debate is about because it it was part of the news cycle, but it's a very technical conversation. So I would love for you to explain to folks what happened. And then secondly, obviously, <clears throat> over the last few days, the rupee has been strengthening. And have you heard or seen or observed things that there are interventions going on? Or what is the driver of this current strength of the rupee since DAR has come in? Would love your thoughts on both those things. So first, maybe let's talk about this FX spread scandal that is going on and banks are supposedly making a ton of money off of it and it being investigated. Oh. And what what happened here?
1: Yeah, what happened here was that the month of July saw extreme shortages of uh, foreign exchange reserves in Pakistan, particularly dollars. The month of July is, you know, I saw the tightest dollar situation that I've seen since 2007 8, somewhere around there. Um, And uh, then, when uh, at the end of September, um, the you know the banks run on a calendar year instead of the fiscal year. So when they filed their and they're all listed entities, so they filed their results with the the stock market at the stock exchange. Uh, and we went through those uh, results. We stumbled across a little finding there, and we saw that uh, the banks seem to have made very, very large profits on their foreign exchange operations in the month of uh, in the second quarter uh, of the fiscal year. I mean, of the, of the calendar year. So that automatically, and, and we're talking outlandishly large, you know, in some cases, larger than the profits they made all last year, uh, all, all of last calendar year. And they made more than that money in three months alone. Now, throughout the month of July, we were hearing from the business community that banks are taking advantage of the desperation of uh, the of business entities Um, You know, somebody who had uh, imported machinery, for example, from a Chinese supplier, the machinery landed at the port and the bank said, sorry, we can't clear it without state bank approval. That that approval was taking a long time to come. Uh, The banks kept saying, well, we don't have the dollars. And then when they did come back and say, "Okay, fine, we've arranged the funds. Now, mind you, you've imported the machinery. It's sitting at the port. Your supplier is saying, yo, where's my money? Um, And at that point, the bank started charging uh, fees that were much larger than what they <clears throat> what 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 they were in normal times. So we heard a lot of this. We heard like LCs being retired at 242 rupees to a to a dollar at a time when the exchange rate was, uh, if I remember correctly, closer to like 230 or less than 230 um, itself. And it left us all wondering that uh, um, and and many people in the business community were raising this issue at that time that these banks are profiteering from the shortages. Uh, when the results came out in September, it sort of uh, seemed to confirm that impression and seemed to confirm what uh, the, the business community had been saying. And then the state bank was summoned by the National Assembly, where the state bank officers went and said, well, we have served show cause notices, we're investigating. They were, the National Assembly was told that there are eight banks in particular uh, who have been asked to explain transaction by transaction, why they charged, uh, such high rates to retire an LC when funds were available, when they were buying funds from the market or borrowing funds from the market at rates far less than that. Um, so, you know, I mean, as that uh, uh, inquiry proceeds, we I look forward to finding out more about what really happened. The bankers, when I speak to them, have their own point of view. They say that, look, we had to borrow from the forward market in order to arrange the funds necessary to retire these LCs. And why would an LC for an oil import, for example, be settled at 242 when the interbank rate is 232? Simple, because we had to buy borrow from the future at a loss uh, because the forward market itself was yielding negative premiums at that time. Now that gets a bit technical, but this is something we wrote about uh, in, uh, in in Profit Magazine uh, about negative premiums uh, on, on, on the forward markets. So this is something that happens whenever there are shortages of dollars in the the markets. Effectively meaning that banks are borrowing from forward markets um, at a loss in order to retire um, LCs that they have opened today. Um, So bankers say, well, then we had no way to actually uh, uh, factor that into the exchange rate because the exchange rate itself may well have been settled in advance at the time when the LC was opened. So we tacked it on as fees um, instead. But uh, if we are to retire a customer's LC by borrowing at a loss from the forward market, then I'm sorry, say the bankers, that loss will have to be passed through to the customer. We aren't going to bear it. Um, now, it becomes difficult at, at at some point to figure out, you know, who's in the right here, uh, were banks going too far, taking advantage of a vulnerable position, um, but uh, I think the Profits that that they booked and they showed on their in their financial results seem to suggest that uh, it was more than just making up for losses, uh, borrowing from the forward market. But anyways, you know I think uh, as the state bank has the capacity to do these kind of inquiries, um, and uh, you know I look forward to finding out more. I think as this uh, proceeds uh, about what's going on, but clearly I think the bank signs some amount of trouble uh, having to explain. Uh, their position. It seems as if yes, there was some amount of profiteering going on during the month of July, um, taking advantage of the dollar shortages to perhaps make a bit of a killing at the expense of their customers.
0: Yeah, I think I remember hearing similar things that you explained, and and on either side, you know, on the business side, the the this, the, the banks were gouging them. That was the allegation, and the banks were like, "We're going to the forward market." But again, if you are saying that three months of profits are more than the last year combined put together. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, the, that's I a question mean, to be asked here.
1: That it turned out to be a pretty lucrative enterprise for them. But maybe they'll have another explanation. We'll see. They'll be given an opportunity to furnish their explanation. But right now, it's not looking good for them. Yeah. I mean, outlandishly large. We're not just saying slightly larger. Um, you know, We're looking at it much, much, much larger than the profits they made in the full calendar year of 2021. Were booked in uh, the second quarter of calendar year 2022 alone. So I think there's some amount of explaining that needs to be done there.
0: And so on this on the same note on the FX side, we've seen the strength in the rupee recently. Obviously, the dollar remains strong globally, and and you know even the UK is finding out that it's not that easy to run a larger than expected fiscal deficit and and get away with it, so to speak. And they they felt it, you know, Liz Truss's government is under the pump because of that. Um, What's driving the current strength of the rupee in Pakistan at this point? Obviously, there is the dar effect, and we've talked about this, but I at least have not come across any credible stories or anything about interventions, etc., although the state bank's reserves continue to slide. And last I checked, I think the 1.2 billion that came from the IMF is pretty much gone um, or about to be gone. So from your point of view, like, what are you hearing? What's driving the strength of the rupee? Is it just market-based dynamics or something else is going on here?
1: No, the, I'm hearing two things uh, are driving this uh, strength of the rupee. It's hard to attach weightage and say which one is driving it how much. Uh, but one, there is clearly uh, interventions and they have been continuing throughout august and uh, one place where you can look to uh, to get a glimpse is the forward cover position that the state bank releases in their in their balance sheet now sadly they don't release this as per a predetermined calendar so they release this data whenever they feel like it so we get large gaps between one release and uh, and another but the latest release that has come out uh, when if you look at the forward cover position what you will notice is that it tends to go negative uh, when Pakistan is not on an IMF program, and it becomes positive every time Pakistan is on an IMF program. And I've actually done this exercise. You can you uh, you know the uh, you you can repeat it um, for the past let's say two years. Just look at the months when Pakistan was not on an IMF program, and suddenly the forward cover position goes negative. Uh, that. Suggests, or it implies, intervention. It implies that the state bank is liquidating some of its positions, arranging for dollars, and then finding ways to put those dollars into the government, into the bank's hand, uh, not through direct sale in the interbank market. That's far too crude a mechanism uh, in our in our time. But using the using forward swaps uh, as a means to put more dollars into their hands. So in the 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 latest data that came out about a few days back. Uh, showed that through August, this entire position was negative, uh, had gone negative. And that tends to do that. And it, that suggests um, um, intervention. I'm saying suggests because there can be other ways, other reasons why it's going negative. But it's, again, highly suspicious that it goes negative only when you're not uh, when the fund program is non-operative. But whenever it is operative, the position suddenly spikes back up into positive territory. Um, The other thing, so there is some intervention going on, um, quite clearly. Anecdotally, I have heard as well from uh, people I speak to, familiar with treasury operations, involved in treasury operations, and we even know the mechanisms. Few favored banks um, manage to get some dollars from the state bank, and uh, they are the ones who then offload into into the interbank market. And it usually happens when the rupee begins to hit certain triggers. Um, this is a more subtle way of intervening in the market then, uh, and it doesn't leave a, a, a trace. It uh, leaves off some suggestions that, that this sort of thing is going on um, without leaving a trace behind in terms of you know the way uh, active selling of dollars in the interbank market would. But the other thing is actually more interesting, which is uh, Dar doing what he did back in uh, January to March 2014. He's shouting down the dollar. And uh, what that basically means is, if you remember in December 2013, he started coming on TV saying he wants to see the rupee back at 98. He said, I don't like the rupee where it's currently sitting. Um, Bring it down to 98 for me. And throughout Jan and Feb, uh, he kept saying that uh, this this needs to come down, this must, and and he would, uh, he he gave lectures before the uh, exporter uh, bodies Asking them, you know, why aren't you guys uh, bringing your dollars back? Uh, Why are you keeping your net open positions open for so long? Um, And uh, eventually, in March 2014, there was a a dive in uh, the value of the dollar. So the rupee appreciated very rapidly with the arrival of the Saudi deposit. That was announced very suddenly. But in those days, you know, they hadn't sold a single one of those dollars into the market the the dollar fell against the rupee simply on word that it seems like dar saab has the resources with which to deliver on his threat and um, i think uh, something similar is happening now the 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 rupee began to fall a uh, rise against the dollar uh, right as word uh, was confirmed that dar saab is returning and when Dar returned on monday that was uh, you know a, a very we saw a very sharp drop i forget the exact amount but it was a very sharp drop in the value of the uh, of the dollar in the both open and curb market and much of this was exporters placing their bet that the dollar has now uh, um, that the exchange rate has bottomed out and all uh, the dollar has peaked Um, And it's time to bring this money back because from here onwards, the rupee is only going to appreciate further and further. And if you bring your dollars later, uh, you will get, it will fetch fewer rupees than it would right now. So, you know, exporters keep their uh, dollars abroad. They have the uh, right to keep them. I think it's 60 days. Um, Keeps changing. It used to be 180 days. It changed it to 90, but it's something like that. Um, Now, they choose the best time to bring it back and they wait to make the call on the exchange rate when they feel it is bottomed out and they will get the maximum rupee for their dollar. That's when they usually close their positions. Uh, The fact that they all began closing these positions on the day DAR landed, um, that helped drive the exchange rate quite a bit. Um, As per my conversations with treasury people, between 50 to 100 million dollars were brought back in by exporters closing their open positions on that Monday when uh, the when Dhar landed back in Pakistan, and then went to take oath and all that. Between then and now, it's just been you know continuous. They uh, they 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 uh, they're, they're closing their position. They're bringing it back, saying that okay, it's peaked. Time to bring it back. Otherwise, you you you'll book losses. So it's a combination of these two things right now. It's certainly not market dynamics. The supply of dollars has not increased in the the market. Because as you also just pointed out, the foreign exchange reserves are clearly showing a decline. Um, And at the same time, uh, the demand for dollars from the import side has fallen to some extent, but nowhere near to the extent that it needs to in order to offset the supply and demand or the, the underlying market fundamentals. So, yeah, we have a combination of sentiment and intervention, in my view, uh, primarily driving the the exchange rate these days.
0: And I think it will be interesting to see in the next cycle now what exporters do when Mr. Daar tries to shout them down, when they also notice that oil is back above 90, yeah. if it stays above 90, the import bill is rising, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it will be interesting to see, I think. Uh, maybe uh, this might be the last uh, gasp of Darunomics as we know and call it in Pakistan but um, I think we touched upon this earlier on in our discussion as well that um, and I agree with you that there does not seem to be any holistic plan um, that the cycles are getting shorter the peaks are getting lower um, and Pakistan seems tapped out and the too big to fail argument perhaps is the last gasp measure that folks have uh, that they're going to make uh, in terms of uh, getting more money from multilateral and bilateral creditors and donors, um, which I think you agree with me on this, is no no way to run a country and an economy of 230 plus million people. No, seriously? And it's a yeah. shame that this is what we've basically come down to in terms of the policy conversation and the policy landscape in, in Pakistan, because there is a lot more to do um, than just figure this out. But that's, this seems to be the the status quo mentality at this point in Pakistan especially in Islamabad I would say um, of people saying you know Aise and you've seen this I've seen this in the media that there is a big segment of journalists and, and and media men media anchors who are sort of in the dark camp who think somehow Dar has a magic wand that he can figure these things out and it's not going to end nicely for the country and one just hopes that people realize that sooner rather than later but doesn't seem like that's happening anytime soon
1: i agree but uh, but in defense of my brethren in the media profession i'll just go back to an earlier thing that i said um, let's also not underestimate the power of the political compulsions that li- that would lie behind the finance minister to do what he's doing at a time like this um, it would be an extraordinarily brave person to stand up to those compulsions, and I think that's one of the reasons why Miftah Smile drew some applause from a very small but uh, you know an important uh, uh, quarter, uh, which which is basically our economists and people such as yourself uh, as well who follow Pakistan's economy carefully, because you I think a lot of people understood that he's had to really take a very, very difficult political stand in order to, you know, that he's had to navigate the trade-offs between growth and stabilization, uh, which are very, very strong, very powerful. And uh, the fact that he managed to do it even for a few months, um, you know, that, that that's not bad. And, uh, but obviously, he needed to, and we, Pakistan, needed to balance these trade-offs for a lot longer than a few months. Um, now we've gone back, but you know the political compulsions are, are powerful, and I think that's what my brethren in the media industry, um, who are putting their trust and faith, perhaps in in Dar or at least uh, are artic- taking or seeing things from his point of view, are acknowledging. They say, you know, if you speak privately to these people, they'll say, look, you're absolutely right in what you are saying, but. Being an elected politician, being not even an unelect, but being any kind of a leader in uh, in this country, it is very, very, very difficult to go to an inflation-saddled population and tell them, look, we've got to raise another five rupees on petrol and diesel uh, because, you know, there's an IMF program, there are fiscal targets. It's incredibly difficult to do. No one has been figured out, no one has been able to figure out how to do this right, how to do this in a way where you get the job done. and you help people understand why you had to get the job done, because you're saving the country from default by effectively pushing tens of millions of uh, its uh, poor and lower middle class people into default.
0: Yeah, and I, like, I agree, and I, I think that that's, that political compulsion is something we do and should continue talking about. But I would also push back as the last point on this uh, before we conclude, as well, Khurram, and maybe you disagree on this. But we hear the same argument in terms of political compulsions when we say the state gives, the taxpayer gives 17 and a half billion a year to elite segment society. This is the UNDP yes. saying this. Yes. You say no, well, political compulsions, we can't do that. You say yes. tax real estate, political compulsion can't do that. Tax retail, political compulsion. So if everything is a political compulsion and the leader is not brave enough to shake up the status quo in a country where clearly the economy is not working, I mean, then perhaps they should not be in the business of leading uh, because clearly they're failing at it.
1: No, agreed 100%. Yeah. So on that, note,
0: 100%. on that note and on that bombshell, thank you so much again for taking out the time. Uh, we'll have you on again soon. And, and as the election's near, I think let's keep an eye out on how this restructuring uh, and relief conversation goes. I don't think it will go in the way that people expect it to go. But for the sake of Pakistan and its millions of citizens, I hope that there's some light at the end of the tunnel. And as our friend Shuja Nawazab says, hope that that light is not another train coming down your way. Uh, so let's hope so. Man. Let's hope for that and hope for the best. And thank you again so much for taking out the time.
1: Thanks for having me. All the best.